On the 15th of December 2014, after 79 days of street occupation in Hong Kong, the Umbrella Movement was over. The Umbrella Occupation was about giving Hong Kong residents full franchise in order to end a rigged system that let Beijing virtually appoint Hong Kong's chief executive. If you don't know much about it, we have a whole episode dedicated to the battle. Episode 12. You might want to check it out. That fight was a turning point. While it was ambitious and caught the world's attention, for those who were there, it felt like a tragic loss. Fermi Wong, a close supporter of the Umbrella Movement's Occupy Trio leadership group, remembers. So how did it feel at the end when it didn't work? I was entirely disappointed. After I went to surrender myself to the police, I, I start, you know, to... I don't know why. Um, it's like I have a sense of hopelessness and also have a sense of uh, powerlessness and start to have some, you know, um, emotional problem. I mean, that, you know, could not sleep or sleep a lot. Fermi was not alone. I think everyone was very disillusioned about how it seemed to have no effect, in a way. People were arrested and how, how some of the students were more disillusioned because the umbrella movement started and students felt empowered. I could feel that they felt that they could do something, they were making changes, and then they were purged. As a university lecturer, Seeling saw her students deeply affected by the loss. Social movement defeat is all-encompassing, yet it can also illuminate new paths. It's only in the darkest sky that you see the brightest stars. To understand the 2019 Hong Kong uprising, we must understand the impact of Umbrella. Today I'm in Hong Kong on Harcourt Road, the place of the Umbrella movement. And we're going back to that moment where Umbrella ended. After 79 days, thousands of activists went home. They hadn't achieved the universal suffrage they demanded, and the movement had been hard. There was tear gas from without, months of occupation, and strategic conflict from within. But many who were there felt compelled that they needed to do things differently, to carry their democracy work forward and learn from what happened. We follow some new paths that emerged from that day and also track the spectre of authoritarianism that has followed them forward. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. These episodes about Hong Kong were produced by Samuel Chu. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. You can check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. The 2014 Umbrella Movement stood out because, unusually, it made a claim for more democracy. In the past, there had been lots of protests, but they had come together as declarations of no. 
people had gathered to say no to sedition laws, no to the massacre of students in China, no to Chinese national education. The no strategy had produced massive demonstrations and they had met with some success, but it had not dramatically improved the underlying structure of Hong Kong's undemocratic government. Hong Kong's constitution is written out in the basic law. This was the final deal struck between the United Kingdom and China in the 1997 handover, and in it, it offered a slither of hope for a more democratic Hong Kong. Article 45 stated that there was an ultimate aim, that the chief executive of Hong Kong should be chosen by the people. The purpose of Umbrella was to pressure Hong Kong and Beijing authorities to enact this ultimate goal at the 2017 chief executive election. For 18 months, a movement called Occupy with Peace and Love advanced this positive claim for universal suffrage. But it was tough. Building a movement around a positive goal was much harder than saying no to an egregious law. When you have a positive claim, you have to create your own momentum. So, there was public discussion, a massive online referendum, town hall meetings and training in non-violent civil disobedience. And it worked. As Bonnie Leung from the Civil Human Rights Front explains, it became a real challenge to Beijing. So that is the the very first time for so many, so many years that Hong Kong people find a way to escalate our actions, to to make the, the government to hear from us. But things don't always go according to plan. The strong student movement at the time, led by people like Joshua Wong and Nathan Law, pipped them at the post. And on the 26th of September 2014, they staged an occupation at the government offices a week earlier than the civil disobedience had been planned. Some students climbed fences to occupy Civic Square. On the 27th of September, tear gas was used for the first time in Hong Kong. But the tear gas didn't turn people away, as the police expected. That really angered a lot of Hong Kong people who was watching TV at home. And those tear gas bombs, 87 of them, dropped onto us. In fact, uh, instead of dispersing us, it made even more Hong Kong people to come out to the street to support this movement. While the occupation was still forming, and while the tear gas was still in the air, frightening messages began circulating on people's phones. There were so many horrible rumours when we were escaping from the tear gas. So the rumours had been the police may use the real guns, they may shoot, people may die at that day. All the protesters directed people away from harm. We started to use the mics uh, to ask if you are students, if you are underage, please leave immediately. Because we heard a lot of rumours. There were pictures showing the police force carrying their long guns. It was very easy for us to leave because the MTR station was just right beside us. But I'm very proud to say 80% people still stayed because this is how much we love Hong Kong. The stakes of Umbrella were high. Many believed it was the final battle for universal suffrage, and people joined and stayed part of it with literally everything on the line. Participants adapted what they were wearing to suit the battle in front of them. 
it became a sort of unofficial uniform. We have umbrellas and uh, face masks and uh, goggles, etc. But less well known is that Beijing authorities also adapted to the situation. They decided to stop their escalation. When the Occupy Trio met with Beijing's representative in Hong Kong, they were told there would be no bloodshed and no compromise. Kinman Chan, who is one of the Occupy Trio and currently in jail, explained. I guess they are using a waiting strategy that um, they didn't respond to our demand and then um, still didn't insist to occupy. The occupation was initially exhilarating, but as Lee Chuck Yun from the Union Confederation notes, these dynamics changed over time. It's very romantic in the beginning, but then we're stuck. Stuck in the sense that how to go ahead. You know, the problem is always with this sort of occupy movement is what to do next. Inside the movement, there were two different ideas about how to act, about how to fight for democracy. And a split among the strategy is uh, what they call peaceful demonstration and, you know, crashing with the police. And that's a split at that time. It's interesting to know where strategies come from. The occupation was organised through a five-party platform, a coalition of sorts. The Hong Kong, the uh, Russia Wong, the Mosito group, at that time, they are, have another name. And then the Occupy Free trio. And then the pro-democracy legislator. And then the civil society. So we have a platform of five. And it's so frustrating. I was the convener of that platform. Leaders were confounded by the fundamental conflict that sat between these two approaches. You know, it's very difficult to come up with a a consensus of what to do next, except to let the thing drag on and not really very easy. And then everyone is doing their own thing and without, uh, really, it's very difficult to talk about the overall strategy. The principle of consensus decision-making didn't work. The different approaches to change couldn't be reconciled. Day after day, until people feel exhausted. So there's a lot of worries, you know, to get go ahead. And uh, there's discussion about retreating, and there's no way out. And finally, it dragged on to a certain extent that the final way out is that the government announced that they will clear the place. Police in Hong Kong this morning are clearing the main camp used by pro-democracy protesters. They removed barricades, broke down tents, and arrested people who would not leave. It was a devastating time. Depressed and hopeless, to be honest. But at that time, a lot of people feared that uh, or expected that we could sacrifice our life for this campaign. Well, we risk our lives and nothing changed. We already escalated our actions. From half a million people took to the streets, not, not a single window was broken kind of stage to we stayed in the streets. A lot of people being arrested uh, voluntarily, I myself included. So what next? It simply has no hope. This sense of hopelessness had many forms. Some of it was externalised. There was a deep uncertainty about the role of protest and public action. Did they have the tools, the strategy to achieve the change they desired? But the crisis was also internal, a sense that people didn't know how to work together. 
an intergenerational chasm had emerged. The vision and strategies of the old and the young had separated. You see, under the handover agreement with the United Kingdom, in 2047, Hong Kong will be handed back to the People's Republic of China. This means the end for the one-country, two-systems arrangement that had made Hong Kong so distinct. For the young, who'd be in the prime of their lives in 2047, this was terrifying. For Eddie Chu, a community activist and later Hong Kong legislative councillor, the defeat brought clarity. That was also um, uh, the final failure of uh, the veteran Democrats uh, in asking for democracy within one country, two system. We could have the chance to think about the destiny of Hong Kong uh, from scratch. It's always like our future was decided by someone else in the 80s. And even the path of democratic movement uh, was set, and that was the only path, the so-called universal suffrage. Uh, but the, the, the whole constitutional order, uh, why the basic law was written like that, why Hong Kong needs to be a financial centre, it was written inside basic law. Why can't uh, we have a deficit budget? For me, um, the whole constitution needs to be rewritten. Uh, but nobody dared to say that before the umbrella movement. Up until 2014, the basic law and the handover deal had set the terms of the democracy debate in Hong Kong. The defeat of Umbrella upended the assumptions in that debate. In doing so, Umbrella's tragic end created the space for people to set a new vision. They could ask, what kind of political life does Hong Kong need today? In defeat, you are left exposed and vulnerable. The victors seek to write the history. In Hong Kong, pro-Beijing lawmakers like Regina Ip sought to proclaim Umbrella as a failed single-issue movement that didn't connect to the majority of the people and to the big issues facing the community. They have not been able to offer really constructive solutions, workable solutions to Hong Kong's fundamental social economic problems. How do you fix the land shortage? How do you fix the housing supply shortage, economic restructuring? Within the movement, leaders recognised that new forms of community outreach and connection were needed. As the Occupy trio turned themselves into the police, they called on people to go back to their local communities and organise. Yeah, there's always a saying that what they call uh, flower, have flower everywhere, you know, yeah, to go to a community to organise, yeah. Let a thousand flowers bloom. This old idea of local organising gained currency partly because it was so different to a big protest. After 2003, because the mass protest worked, so people were more willing to join this mass protest. But after Umbrella Movement, as I said, even that didn't work. So what would work? Obviously, mass protests wasn't one of the choices. So for many years, uh, Hong Kong people were not very uh, eager to join this kind of mass protests. People took up the call to move to the community. After the movement, many young people established uh, community groups. People had modest expectations about the potential of this work. 
as Benny Tai, one of the occupied trio, explained to Time magazine in 2015. It will not be very dramatic. I think we will not see the tear gas again. It is more about uh, laying down a, a even uh, stronger groundwork. But the importance is that we have to continue and we have to persist. If not, we will never reach our, our final destination, that is universal suffrage. Out of this idea, two distinct but connected organising strategies emerged. After the umbrella movement, some of the people, you know, they form to different groups with different purpose. For example, you know, some groups, they really go to the communities. We call, we, you know, go to uh, planting the hope or uh, try to spread, you know, the, um, uh, the meaning of democracy to educate the community when some of them doing that and some of them you know, try to run the elections, right, in the uh, district uh, level. There were two approaches, community building and political parties. The democratic goals of the umbrella movement were deeply held, but many believed that they hadn't succeeded in getting that message heard. I think that because the media, um, maybe you know, sometimes it, it would be um, biased by uh, many kind of different interests and uh, the reporting is biased. Yip Kim Cheng is a clinical psychologist and was inspired by Umbrella to do organising in the community. So we, we need to do more community work to, uh, first we need to demonstrate or, or talk to the, the community people about the linkage between the, uh, the direct nation about the, the daily life and daily social life. It was the simple idea that democracy gives you a voice to improve your daily life. It's not just about constitutions and voting, but about making changes in all those key issues like education, transport and housing. Actually, I remember there's 80 to 100 facilitator people going to the district, the Samsopo district, because Samsopo district has a lot of poor people. This action in Sham Shui Po began what became known as the Yellow Day activities. First, we do a lot of um, civic conversation, you can tell, say that. We go to the public space and we open what they call some uh, public stores and uh, we say we, 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 we need to talk to each other about our, our life, our community, uh, our government and things like that. Then we uh, will we'll, uh, ask for another volunteer uh, facilitator and we go maybe to 20 to 30s and at a certain time we go to for a public talk and an individual conversation with uh, each citizen. And we publish uh, some uh, leaflets uh, to talk about the issue to uh, distribute to the citizen. We have tried to uh, liaise for, with some uh, local community uh, organizations. And we uh, may have more exchange of uh, views and exchange of uh, skills with them about how to connect more to the local community. In addition, in places like Sham Shui Po, where there was a lot of poverty, the program built direct community support. Sham Shui Po, that day, the first yellow day, we call yellow day, we, do, we have asked for other um, more uh, well-off or, or those uh, uh, citizens they could they want to support other uh, less privileged people and give out fans. Alongside about 20 to 30 community leaders, Kim Cheng and others moved from district to district, building a community movement. 
they would spend about two weeks in each place, and across 2015 they engaged at least 12 of Hong Kong's 18 districts. Alongside the Yellow Day activities, other grassroots movements bloomed. Eddie Chu, an emerging community organiser, deepened his work with the Land Justice League, focusing outside the city centre in the Western New Territories. In, in practice, it was only after the umbrella movement that I became active again. Since uh, people started to pay attention to uh, community works or pay attention to uh, local politics again. Eddie's work wasn't just about bringing people together. It was about helping people interpret the political environment they were in. Helping groups in different areas to, uh, to start uh, community works. And because these um, new participants, they, they were new to Hong Kong politics, their only experience was the, was the umbrella movement in different occupied areas. So they, they were like white papers. They were blank canvases. It is my task to introduce them uh, to them the, the more complicated scene uh, in, in districts. Eddie's organising work sought to embody the deepest ideals of the post-umbrella democracy that he hoped to build in Hong Kong. So I had the feeling uh, after umbrella movement that finally more people felt like we should be our master, we should be the master of this city. We, we should no longer be followers, but we should be creators. What is important is at least we can make our first step and build something first, intellectually or in, in not big scale, but small scale in communities. This new movement soon came to be known as localism. It was not only about community action, but it also sought to intervene in the upcoming elections. Hong Kong's limited governing structure has several representative bodies. There are district councils that are very local, and then a central legislative council that governs the city as a whole. The legislative council is half made up of generally elected representatives, and the other half are appointed from a narrower group of professionals called functional constituencies, which tend to be dominated by pro-Beijing forces. Finally, to appoint the chief executive, an election committee of only 1,200 representatives from the functional constituencies votes on a panel of candidates pre-vetted by Beijing. The setup means that pro-Beijing forces have controlled the legislature. That said, elections in Hong Kong are contested, and since the early 1990s, democratic activists have successfully taken their community work to the electoral arena. Every time after a large mobilisation, people go back to local politics. That has be- become a trend. That trend was set to continue post-umbrella, with district council elections set for November 2015 and legislative council elections in 2016. 2015 and 2016, uh, many new parties came out and, and very active participation in in politics, mm. in the election. But this time things were different. Umbrella had disrupted how politics was organised. In the past, when we talk about democratic movement in Hong Kong, there, there were always uh, several icons. We have a single project. Everybody agrees that. So what we need to do is uh, wait for their orders and get mobilised. Uh, 
once a year or twice a year. But after ballet movement, it was totally different. Uh, traditional democratic parties uh, became less powerful and actually they lost the leadership in, in the movement. So nobody, nobody knows who, who to follow. And that becomes, I mean, the, this, a very chaotic and then once again very attractive uh, situation that everybody can have their say in what will be next for our city. Many flowers bloomed. District movements created many parties. A surge of Democratic candidates contested the 2015 District Council election, creating great hope for the citywide 2016 election. The activists from the Yellow Day movement began organising in the functional constituencies. Those arcane electoral groups were used by Beijing as a counterweight to the geographical electorates. These seats were set aside for professional groups like business leaders in the areas of agriculture, transport and medicine. Only registered professionals in those areas could vote for these representatives. But some of the new Democrats were professionals. Democratic leaders like Yin Kim Chin were medical professionals. They began identifying people to run in those hard-to-win elections. Umbrella veterans Joshua Wong and Nathan Law had also been thinking about political parties. They had been inspired by Taiwan's Sunflower Student Movement, who, following a 2014 occupation of the Taiwan legislature, had created a new political party called the New Power Party. By January 2016, the New Power Party had brought a more radical democratic independence agenda to the Taiwan legislature. As Bonnie explains, this had an impact on the Hong Kong movement. In, in Taiwan, they, they occupied their legislature. And um, of course, we learned from their experiences as well. Uh, some of our activists uh, in Hong Kong do know personally uh, of their leaders then, students' leaders. In April 2016, Nathan Law and Joshua Wong launched the Nemesisto Party. They took aim at Beijing, but equally at old-style establishment pan-democratic parties. Demisisto wanted to take the energy of Umbrella and the hope of the younger generation to Hong Kong's parliamentary practice. Nathan Law planned to run for a seat on Hong Kong Island. Demisisto was not alone. A series of independent and new parties contested seats in the Legislative Council, including Eddie Chu. Well, my participation in the... It was coincidence. I did not uh, plan for that. It's hard to be an accidental politician, but at this time, in 2016, the political context required reluctant politicians to step up. The politics of localism had become complicated. While people like Eddie discussed the local production of food to make an argument about environmentalism and local political autonomy, others twisted localism in a different way. At the same time, there were different types of localists trying to combine this endeavours uh, to a right-wing racist thing, saying that, well, if the government does not stop immigration, then everything you are doing in the community are in vain. Uh, it leads to nowhere. So you can do that, but at the same time, our major vision should be a stop of the new immigrants and also the establishment of a Hong Kong nation. 
racist nationalism. It's a global phenomenon. In Hong Kong, one strand of localism sought to attack Chinese mainlanders. What I found was that if I did not participate in Legislative Council election, then somebody will... Eddie embraced being a candidate. One of his contributions was to bring new political debates into the mainstream. I tell the public the reality of uh, the, the city. The reality, uh, in my opinion, uh, was that Hong Kong was a collusion between the government, business sector and the landlords in the rural area and the mafia groups. And that resonated with the people. People had, people out of a mainstream party seldom uh, talk about the underground world and its influence to our daily lives. And we saw these mafia groups uh, employed uh, people to attack peaceful protesters uh, during the murder movement. And they are doing the same thing right now. So I think that is also uh, one reason why, why I got uh, many votes. Eddie had seen Beijing fight dirty in local battles in the new territories, like during the building of the fast train connection between Hong Kong and the mainland. His new political platform allowed him to teach a wider audience about the nuances of Hong Kong authoritarianism, like how every People's Liberation Army posture is backed up by a guerrilla army of paid vigilante triad gangs. His strong agenda, backed up by years of local community organising, paid off. I won the election and I got more than 80,000 votes and that was the highest numbers among uh, candidates in uh, all over Hong Kong. So that was unbelievable. Why do you think you were so successful? I was successful not because I was smart. Or good-looking, although, good looking, of course. <laughs> but uh, it was because people are seeking for change and seeking for new faces, seeking for someone who is uh, not from big parties. Kinman Chan from the Occupy Trio agreed it was significant. Not just young people, but people like Tanya Chan, uh, who is one of the keen supporters of the movement, now is one of the uh, defendants <laughs> in court. Siu Ga Jun, the social worker, who, who, who holds the, the event every night in the Occupy Song in MOT. He is the, the MC. He was also got elected and also have these young people uh, from this new party, they, they also got united. So we got very good results. I believe these young people have become more confident that they are able to participate in um, politics, even in elections. Uh, so I guess there is going to have long-term impact, particularly for the younger generations. The September 2016 election was an unprecedented victory for the Democrats but it wasn't without controversy. A variety of new localist democratic movements were successful, but they took seats from older democratic legislative councillors. For Nathan Law, it was a change in the political guard. It shows how Hong Kong people wanted to change. And uh, actually, we were stuck in a, a democratic movement and people are voting for a new way and new future of our democratic movement. The Democrats had not only won 29 out of the 35 geographical constituencies, 
they also made inroads into the pro-Beijing functional constituencies. The Democrats won 10 of those 35 seats. For the first time ever, there was the possibility of a Democratic electoral majority. It would be constrained by the power of the chief executive, who had the power to introduce legislation, and it would require a series of very different Democrats to work together. But something new had emerged. What would happen now? What would Beijing do? Beijing casts a long shadow on Hong Kong's political life, and the 2016 elections were no different. While preparing to get elected for the Legislative Council, Nathan Law had to take time out to attend court hearings with fellow Umbrella student leaders Joshua Wong and Alex Chow. They faced charges of inciting others to take part in an unlawful assembly. Beijing's authority had an ever-present quality. Then, in August, in an unusual turn of events, only weeks before the Legislative Council election, they were given suspended sentences and community service. No jail. Joshua Wong remarked at the time. Compared to the sentencing of going to a jail or uh, other, uh, other price that need to pay, actually community service for 80 hours is not really serious. Hong Kong's chief executive agreed and immediately ordered for the sentence to be revised. This was rejected in September, allowing law to participate in the 2016 elections. But Beijing was no hidden dragon. In less than three years, almost every single visible umbrella leader would serve significant jail time and Beijing would regain the balance of power in the Legislative Council. Sometimes power is amassed by plan. Sometimes it is seized in a moment of opportunity. Since 2004, Democratic Legislative councillors have used the oath-taking ceremony, where new members are formally welcomed to the chamber to symbolically protest. As it was at the October 2016 oath-taking ceremony following successful elections. During the oath-taking session, uh, there was the beginning of the uh, Legislative Council meeting. Many of the members from the opposition side chose to use that occasion to express uh, their political views. So apart from reading the the oath uh, word by word, uh, people try to uh, add things uh, before, after or in between and use different ways to express their uh, opposition towards uh, mainland China government. And I am one of them. Immediately, the chief executive ordered that Eddie Chu and a dozen of his fellow legislative councillors would be drawn into an unprecedented judicial review process where Beijing authorities argued that they should be disqualified because they failed to follow the correct oath. Legislators did not deliberately looking for this disqualification. They only tried to seize that chance to express their views it was used uh, uh, by uh, the Beijing government. The Democrats were caught off guard. I actually find two of uh, my colleagues oath-taking quite offensive since they were using foul language and uh, racist language uh, against uh, mainland China. And I think that's the reason why uh, Beijing... Uh, could get an upper hand. A to-and-fro process pitted the courts against the legislature. But momentum was against the Democrats. Up till now, when I go to the streets, 
people uh, were still angry about the way uh, legislators took their oath. They felt very annoyed that we voted for you to criticize the government in meetings, but not during oath-taking session. And it's a stupid act. By mid-2017, six legislative councillors were disqualified, including Nathan Law. Just enough for Beijing to take back control of the Legislative Council. Changed the election result uh, by disqualifying uh, legislators. And it uh, led to a huge uh, setback for uh, the opposition. The Umbrella Movement's defining grievance was that the Hong Kong people cannot choose their own leader. Democrats had succeeded at the ballot box, but the chief executive was still appointed by a pro-Beijing-dominated 1,200-person electoral committee. On the 26th of March 2017, a new leader was appointed, Carrie Lam. In her acceptance speech, she said she would bring people together to heal. The very next day, a series of charges were issued against nine umbrella organisers, including the Occupy trio, Benny Tai, Kinman Chan and Reverend Chu. The timing was not lost on Fermi Wong, a close supporter of the Occupy trio. I was so angry, so angry, because, you know, what Kerry Lam said, you know, just because it's still very fresh memory, say, OK, I want to repair the relationship between two parties. I want to reduce, the, you know, the conflicts. I want to promote harmony. What she just said. But then next day... The charges against the group, now called Umbrella Nine, were more obscure and threatening than the charges previously brought against the students. We were arrested again. And then we were charged for three very peculiar offences. Number one is conspiracy to cause public nuisance. No longer they use the public order audience to prosecute it. They find something from common law from the old days, talking about public nuisance. And they also charge her for conspiracy to cause public nuisance. This is the first charge. The second one is to incite people to cause public nuisance. Number three, even more ridiculous. Inciting other to incite other to cause public nuisance. And each charge carries seven years of imprisonment. So in total, it will be 21 years. Why do you think they used such obscure charges? Because, you know, um, I, I, I know very well that uh, the company or the um, government, they really, really hate Benny Tai. Yeah, I was approached by um, Chinese embassy people, yeah, a few times. Um, they really hate uh, Joshua Wong and Benny Tai. And what they want is they want to totally defeat Benny Tai, either move him away from Hong Kong U or just put him to the jail, you know, or want him to disappear anyway in the civil society. So that's why they spend so long time to find out is there any law that, you know, they can use and which, you know, uh, which can how to say, you know, it has the, you know, very um, 
uh, long sentencing or, you know, uh, serious punishment. The charges were designed to send a message. I was keep asking, why, why not arrest me too? But I know that because I, I don't have any political inferences. It was the first of many messages to be delivered by the Carrie Lam administration. It was a long time between when the Umbrella Nine were charged and their trial. Between then, the students, Nathan Law, Joshua Wong and Alex Chow, faced government appeal to their initial sentence. By August 2017, they were all in jail. The Umbrella Nine's court proceedings began in November 2018. It was a high-profile trial. Enormous numbers of people came to watch. Fermi found herself in charge of logistics, corralling a team of volunteers to ensure that the families of the accused could have seats in the courtroom. So I organised volunteers to light up. You know how early? <laughs> it was 5am. The court started at 9.30 and we need to light up so as to get the seat taken. So I need to leave my home at uh, 4am. She became an unofficial court reporter, issuing daily updates from the court. I just, you know, immediately report what happened inside the car. Maybe saw it in my Facebook. It was not a usual court hearing. It looked in the press and on social media, it was almost like it was a, it was a bit like a social movement. Yeah. All this yellow, everyone in yeah. yellow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> was that all planned? I don't think it's a, how to say, it's, it's not really intentional, intentionally or, uh, you know, someone that really can make it happen. No. I think it's just, you know, because um, the majority of Hong Kong people do share the importance of democracy. Preparing for the verdict and sentencing was difficult for them all. Putting them into jail, I should expect, you know. But of course, it's psychologically, emotionally, it's really hard to take it. And just like, you know, um, we still, you know, hoping that there will be a miracle. The feeling is like it's unsettling. That, you know, what I was hoping was not possible. Hinman Chan, one of the Occupy trio, saw his place in the trial not as a defendant, but as a teacher. For me, it is to face the trial bravely. It is an important demonstration to the rest of society, particularly to the young people, that people are willing to, you know, sacrifice. Uh, for the betterment of the society. As a professor, as a teacher, I think this is the best way to teach my students, not just by words, but by deeds, by our own commitment. So this is something I think is very important. The courts were full on the 24th of April for the sentencing of the Umbrella Nine. And when the judge uh, uh, read out the sentencing... Benny Tai and Kinman Chan were taken in custody to begin 16-month sentences. Others received shorter or suspended sentences. And, but still feel um, very frustrating, very sad, because I think that they are not guilty. 
they commit no crime, no sin, but they suffer um, because of the injustice, because of um, political persecution. A sense of injustice was not only being felt inside the courtroom. A new debate about justice was emerging in the city of Hong Kong about an extradition bill. In the same way that these arcane sentences embodied imperial overreach, the extradition bill used the excuse of a murder trial to propose legislation that could allow for any arrested Hong Kong citizen to be extradited to the mainland. Only four days after the Umbrella Nine was sentenced, on the 28th of April, 130,000 people protested against the extradition bill. Beijing used all its power to close the chapter on Umbrella in 2019, but in doing so, it unleashed something it could not have imagined. The community organiser Saul Alinsky famously quipped, every action has a reaction. The Umbrella movement proved more reactive than most. Its power was not in what happened, but in what it taught all Hong Kong citizens about what it means to lead. The brutality of Beijing meant that Umbrella's visible leaders, the heroes of the movement, ended up with targets on their back. So, as Democratic activist Miranda explains, post-Umbrella leadership had to be different. You could say that everyone is a leader, you know. Yes, it is leaderless. It's not an organised leader. Uh, We don't have a very formal organisation to organise anything. But in a way, people take things in their own hands and everyone has ownership. If you have an idea, just go for it. These leaders learnt new ways to take action too. The community organising and localism in 2015 was the start of something much bigger. They learned that, you know, you just, you know, you don't occupy on the street day by day. They learned that that is not use. So now you can see, they just like water. They occupy for one day or for a while, and then they just, you know, disappear or run. But the biggest reaction was felt by the young. Kim and Chan told me this in 2017. I think the younger generation have been awakened by this movement. I talked to many, many young people after the movement. They believe it's such an important event in their life. And many people uh, even changed their whole direction of studies or their vocation because of this movement. Kinman was not able to see this emerge before he was jailed. But it is without question that he was right. Extradition was built on umbrella. The Hong Kong protests that followed, stretching across five demands, call for fundamental changes in how Hong Kong is governed, how the police behave, how the city is led. They generate enormous hope. And just like Umbrella, they sit in the shadow of Beijing's reaction. Our next episode looks into exactly this and how the dynamics of the movement and the politics of reaction have clashed in Hong Kong. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Amanda Tattersall, Samuel Chu and Ben Keating. This episode is written by Amanda Tattersall. Our audio producer is Jules Rookera. 
Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. It breaks down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. You can check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We're also supported by the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast, follow us on Twitter at Changemakers99 and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking.